Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is David Desteno. He wrote a terrific book called Emotional Success, The Power of Gratitude, Compassion, and Pride. David is a professor of psychology at Northeastern University and a fellow of the American Psychological Association, where he was formerly the editor-in-chief of the journal Emotion. And uh, this is a really interesting book, and it, it posits something that I personally find myself very interested in. And, and, you know, this is a leadership podcast and we're talking about leadership behaviors. What I'll say is one of the things I'm most interested in is how I will work really hard all day and then end up eating a pint of ice cream. And it doesn't really make sense that that should happen. And there's a lot of reasons in terms of why that's happening and the way to stop it is very, very different than what I would have thought. So that's the that's the teaser for this conversation. David, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Hi, Peter. Thank you for having me on, and I'm and I'm I'm glad you 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 like the book. So thanks a lot. So David, you start with the promise that grit is critical, right? That Angela Duckworth has written grit. She's been on this show. Uh, and that perseverance, and we all know, the, or most of us know, the marshmallow experiment of like, you know, ways of persevering, and that most of us try to use willpower to achieve that kind of perseverance. And you say that that's ultimately a mistake, that willpower is short-lived and uh, the energy is it's a depleting of our energy. And pro-social emotions, gratitude, compassion, and pride are easier to generate, more sustainable, and far more powerful. And, uh, you know, that's, I guess, from my sense, the basic frame of the book. Do you want to expand on that in any way? No, I, that's right. I mean, you know, if, if you think about it, um, if willpower were easy to use, you know, it wouldn't be that 8% of New Year's resolutions make it to year's end, 25% are blown already. Uh, and even on a daily basis, what research shows is one out of every five or six times we try to, to um, resist temptations in order to pursue a goal, we fail. And if success is so important, valuing the long term over the short term is so important, there should be a better way to do this. And I completely agree with Angela and Walter Michelle, who did the marshmallow test. The ability to value the future more than the present is what matters. But what bothers me is if we've been relying on scientific information to help us solve this problem, why are we still so bad at it? And I think it's because we have this misunderstanding about where self-control comes from, right? For, for millennia, what mattered for success was the ability to have good cooperative relationships with people. That is, you know, to let them see you as a good partner, that they want to work with, that they want to support, that they'll help you when you when you need it and vice versa. To do that, you had to be fair, you had to be honest, you had to be generous. And the things that support that are these pro-social emotions, things that um, make us willing to invest with and cooperate with other people, things like gratitude and compassion. And what our research is showing, and we can talk about this, is these emotions not only make you willing to sacrifice to help other people, they actually make you willing to sacrifice for someone else who is important to your own success, and that is your own future self. And the way they do that is by making you value the future more than the present. And if I value the future more than the present, I'm not always 
fighting a desire to eat the ice cream or to or to not work hard. I'm valuing my future more, and so it's just easier to persevere toward it. Okay, so I've got a million questions, but here let's let's, let's take the first one, which is valuing the future over the present, and and that you know that makes sense. Actually, Hal Hirschfeld, who you talk about, has also been on this podcast, and I like him a lot. And, and it's, a, it's a big focus in the coaching that we do, right, which is how do you get people to focus on a future they want to create versus the present that's distracting them in many ways. On the other hand, there are people, and maybe perhaps there's a possibility, I'm talking about myself, who tend to value the future maybe too much more than the present. And so I may find myself working all the time. And I may, so I'm, I'm kind of curious about this I just want to establish the sense of present and future first and say that there there are workaholics amongst us who might be working too hard for that and not enough for the present and yet still do things in the present that we don't we don't totally love, but maybe the guilt yeah. and shame that comes along with that is misplaced well I think I mean you're absolutely right, but I think what what you're you're conflating in that experiment is in that example is what's important in the present sounds like things that aren't as work oriented. It's maybe more times with your family or friends or, or, or things to build other aspects of your life. And so this is kind of exactly one of the things that led me to write this book. You know, if, if, if you listen to David Brooks, he'll talk about there are two types of virtues. There are resume virtues, those things that we need to get ahead in life, like working hard, nose to the grindstone drive. And there are these eulogy virtues, things that we want to be remembered for, like kindness and fairness and spending time with our family and friends. And it's true in our modern life, we tend to separate those two. But I think that's a false dichotomy, right? The eulogy virtues can be the ones that help you do both. Right. And there's one of the favorite examples I talk about is work by Google. Um, They did a project called Project Oxygen, and they were trying to figure out what led to the manager's success in leading a team. And they assumed it was going to be technical prowess. They're a high tech company. What they found out was that one of the big predictors wasn't how much technical prowess people had, but did they foster a culture of kind of empathy? That is, did they foster a culture where individuals took time to help each other, support each other, talk about their social life, bond with each other? And by cultivating these emotions, not only do they make you more willing to value the future of the present, that is, they make you more willing to solve the marshmallow test correctly. We can talk about experiments on that. But by behaving in these ways, they also increase your time spent with other people. They also tighten your social bonds. And so you're building both of those virtues at the same time, you know, the people who are high in grit, it's true, they fail less often than other people because they're working really hard. But when they fail, the hit to their well-being is 120% greater than the rest of us. And I think it's because exactly what you're saying, they're putting all their eggs in that one basket by suppressing those other aspects of their life. And they don't have that social support needed to help them when they fail, when they look back, to, they'll have regrets for not cultivating that, that side of their life. So one more stab, I love that answer, and one more stab at, at uh, you know, a slightly different approach to something that you were talking about, which is that ultimately what's allowed us to succeed for millennia are these sort of pro-social behaviors and the ability to connect with others. You know, I think about David McClellan's research, right, in the, I guess, 60s or 70s, which sort of say there's three social motives, right, achievement, drive, affiliation, and power, and that affiliation is one of those, but achievement is is another one. And are you talking to a narrower set of people that says that the sort of social connection is what actually ultimately leads to our success and happiness and leaving out the achievement-driven people or the, or the power-driven people, or ultimately, does it cross all those bounds? It crosses all those bounds. I mean, my argument is these emotions, both, 
your desire for connection and affiliation and your desire for achievement. Right. So what we show. So, you know, you're talking about how Hirschfeld's data, you know, how these wonderful studies where he shows that he, he, he morphs people's faces. Right. So you can see yourself as you look at 70 and when he makes future you look kind of sad. Well, suddenly you'll put more money toward future you than going out to buy the new smartphone because you're willing to invest in it. Why? Because you feel compassion for future you. And so what we show by these emotions is when you feel proud of your abilities, not only does that make you seem more powerful to others, make them want to work with you and connect with you as long as it's an authentic pride, you're not being arrogant, but it gives you drive and persistence to pursue your own goals. And so what these emotions do is they fulfill both the achievement and the affiliation goal at the same time. And because they do that, they're maximizing resume virtues and eulogy virtues at the same time. So before we dive in, I just have this one, dive into gratitude, compassion, and, and pride. You know, gratitude and compassion is, there's an element of motherhood and apple pie to it. Pride surprised me a little bit because, you know, pride is a vice. Uh, and, and yet it's, it's pro, so, I mean, I don't think pride's a vice, but it's, you know, it's been, it's gotten a bad rap. And so I'm sort of curious, you know, I'd love, I want to do a little bit of a deeper dive in each of these three, but I'm curious where pride, what, what led you to figure out the, that these were the three? Yeah. So pride does seem like the odd one out. I, I agree with you. But um, if you think about it, you know, where does pride come from initially? And you see this when, you know, if you're a parent and you have children, um, your kids will look to you to see what's an important behavior, right? And you will say, you know, I'm really glad that you were working at this. This is something important. And that's how we mark value. So where pride came from is develop an emotion to make you develop abilities that are valued by those around you. Why? Because it makes you, again, a more attractive partner. Just like if you feel compassion and gratitude, you're going to be a partner who pays people back and doesn't cheat them. If you feel pride in your work, you're going to work to develop skills that others around you value. Now, because we humans can take a third person stance on ourselves, we can kind of be our own audience. And so we can be proud of idiosyncratic things. But it really comes from doing something that those around you value. Now, any emotion when you experience it in the wrong intensity or the wrong context is a problem. Do that too much, it's a disorder, right? Even happiness, right? Happiness that's out of bounds is mania. That's a problem. It's just a pride. We have a name for it. When you're starting to feel proud of abilities you don't have, then that can clearly cause a problem. But authentic pride, old school pride, and like, look, I'm, I'm building a product. I'm working hard for my team. That's an attractive quality. Um, one last thing is that in I should never promise that, but in some strange way, it feels like we're you're asking people to take a risk, right? You're asking all of us to take a risk, and that risk is, I know what I want, and I know that I could work really hard to sort of go get it and just focus on myself and be, you know, uh, uh, you know, invest in myself, and and yet the and I know this to be true that success will come when I develop deeper connections with others and when I make sacrifices both for myself but also for other people, when I uh, reduce my inclination to just pursue what's important to me and find ways to support other people. And yet we're saying to do that in a way that makes it better for you in the end. And it's a, it's, it's, um, that, that's a difficult move for a lot of people to make. And, and people, you know, it's not that they're selfish so much as I think they're afraid. It's like there's there's a fear. Well, it's funny, Peter, when people ask me, you know, I, I want to be successful. I want to climb the corporate ladder. Should I be a jerk, you know, or should I be a nice guy? And I say, well, the answer is, what's your time frame? If you want to succeed very rapidly, you can be a jerk and you can be self-focused, you know, and not help others and take all the credit you can for yourself and 
et cetera. And what they, there's wonderful evolutionary models of this by a guy named Martin Novak at, at Harvard, he's an evolutionary biologist. And what he shows is initially the individuals who are egotistical or egoistic, I mean, who are self-focused, working hard, not helping will climb the ladder in terms of accruing resources. But over time, because they don't have those, those good bonds with other people who through cooperation will work together, their resources tend to deplete. Individuals who are more willing to, to reach out to build social connections at home or, at, or in the office over time garner the most resources. So I'm not saying we're all going to sit around singing kumbaya and meditating and you know holding flowers. What I'm saying is there's actually hard data that shows being compassionate, expressing gratitude actually leads to your own individualistic outcomes being better over time and in a way that also supports you and those around you in other domains. And so it's kind of a win-win over the long haul. And it's actually what you say, it's a beautiful mirror to what you write about willpower, right? Which is that willpower uh, is incredibly useful, possibly in the short term, but ultimately, you know, as a long-term tool to game the system, it's ultimately unsustainable. Yeah. I mean, what we know about willpower is you're always trying to fight an immediate desire for one thing to focus on something else. Because of that, your body is always in a state of stress or tension. Whereas if you experience these emotions, you value the future more. So let me, let me give you an example. We do the marshmallow test with cash. We bring people in and we say, you can either have a small amount of money now, or you can have a larger amount of money later. What we find is most people are pretty impatient. You know, they'll take the smaller amount of money now. The, the numbers that you wrote about are incredulous to me. $17 now versus $100 in a year. Yes, yeah, so we ask them lots of questions. And from that, we can kind of calculate their discount factors. And what that shows is the average person will say, if you use $100 in a year, is worth $17 now or vice versa. If I gave them $17 now, they'd forego $100 in a year, which I don't know about you, but unless you need that $17 to survive, the opportunity to quintuple your money, given what the banks are paying, is a pretty yeah. In fact, I'd go for the hundred. Not only that, but I'm curious while while I have you on the podcast whether you would agree to this sort of an experiment, but with larger numbers. Like, let's say I give you, you know, ten thousand dollars now, and and you multiply it by four times and give it back to me in a year. I'm just, you know, wanted to try to make a business deal while we have the podcast on. You want to do that? <laughs> yes, I would. I would you do that. would. That's awesome. It depends, right? It depends. If you need that $10,000 to do something today, fine, no. But in general, if you have a long-term view, it's much better to do that. What we find is people who are grateful, right, they'll double their patience. They won't take the $17. It takes a lot more for them to be willing to satisfy that, that immediate goal. But it's also not stressful for them. They just value the future more. And so what it means is by valuing the future more, I'm not fighting the desire for that $10,000. I'm just easing my way toward the future goal. And so my body is not in the state of stress. And so when you feel compassion and pride and gratitude, yes, you're valuing the long-term more, but you are also, the data shows, sleeping better at night, having lower heart rate, lower blood pressure, less stress responses, building connections to other people. And so it's a more kind of resilient way to pursue your goals in the long-term than always trying to fight yourself and force yourself into doing something that you don't want to do. Okay, so help us now figure out how to use, you know, gratitude, compassion and pride to make it more likely that we'll choose the $100 over 17 or make it more likely that I will pass by the fridge after a hard day of work and not end up eating that pint of ice cream. That's right. So how do you write? So that's the question. How do you cultivate these emotions? So I can give you a few strategies. Um, one, and it sounds kind of trite, but it actually 
works really well is we ask people daily to kind of reflect on their blessings, things that they feel grateful for. The trick here is we all have two or three things that we're incredibly grateful for in life. You can't focus on those two or three things because if you do them every day, they're going to lose their power. So in our data, we saw people just focusing on did someone, you know, stop and help you with, with a problem you had at work today? Did someone hold the door for you? Did someone give you their seat on the subway? Little things like that do the same, just daily reflecting on things that, that you're grateful for. Or another great thing people do, and this works well in family units or in teams, is something called the reciprocity ring, where you uh, everybody puts up on a board a problem that they have. And then everybody else has to go up and sign Okay, here's my problem, but you have this problem. I can help you with this. And so everybody's putting up a problem and agreeing to help somebody else with a different problem. And what you're doing there is fostering the giving and, and taking. I, you know, I like to use Adam Grant's language here, the give and take of, of favors. And what that tends to do is, is begin to build habits of helping and being helped and feelings of gratitude. For compassion, there are two things I'd recommend. One is, again, practicing mindfulness. If you think about What's the original purpose of meditation? It's not to maximize your 401k. It's not to be creative. It's not to do any of these things. It's basically to foster ethical action. And so we have lots of work showing that even short periods of meditation, as little as three or four weeks, increase people's feelings of compassion and their willingness to act on it. Another thing is perspective taking. A couple times a week, stop. Try and put yourself in the shoes of those around you. Try and see the world through their eyes, and you will begin to feel compassion more regularly. Pride, um, the important thing with pride is, is celebrating successes along the way. That is, don't only look at your future goal and only feel proud when you get there. Feel pride at each individual step along the way, and that will help you to persevere toward those future goals. So those are some easy ways. There are more in the book, but those are the easy ways. You know, I'm, I'm curious because I feel like the positive psychologists, you know, Tal Ben-Shahir, Daniel Gilbert, like a lot of these guys who also write about happiness, not just guys, but women also, that they that they've been talking about sort of compassion and and gratitude and gratitude journals and and something felt a little different to me about how maybe it was the specificity with which you were writing about it but I'm curious why those things haven't seemed to have made an impact and maybe they have maybe this is you know you're another voice approaching it from a slightly different way but if there's a certain approach or twist to to these that you think might make the difference for someone who's already, you know, has a gratitude journal or meditates and yet they're still going after that pint of ice cream or they're still, you know, choosing the 17 over the 100. Yeah, well, a few things. One is there's a big difference on between just general happiness and these emotions, right? These emotions are what we call social emotions. That is, they, they underlie human give and take and cooperation, which requires some level of sacrifice and patience. Just feeling happy won't do it. In fact, when we in our data, when people are feeling happy, they're just as impatient as people who aren't feeling anything. Because when you feel happy, you want to keep that hedonic pleasure going. You don't want to sacrifice. So these emotions are are separate because they're involved in in, in the true social exchange. Um, but I think what you can do is, if you're doing these things regularly, the importance is is, is to really make them habits. Right, not just to do them here once in a while and on and off again, to the extent that you do them repeatedly and frequently and even combine them. Right. If you're doing gratitude journals, meditate also. If you're involved in, in, in feeling proud of you know, trying to cultivate pride in your in your daily achievements, also give yourself self-compassion when you fail. Um, I think to the extent that you can foster these as habits in, in creating these virtuous emotions in life, they will help. And you know, it's not the magic cure. You're not gonna start doing this 
and three weeks later, you're going to be the master of willpower. But they are kind of, I mean, the master of, of, of long-term thinking, but they do make a change. And we see there's, lot, you know, there's lots of data in the workplace showing that um, uh, individuals who cultivate these emotions have more grit and grace in terms of how they interact with others in the field. And so I think it's a matter of doing them regularly and combining them. And it sounds also like you're not saying you don't use willpower, but you're saying that your willpower will be naturally augmented by having strength in gratitude, compassion, and pride. Yeah, I mean, the problem of valuing the future over the present is in many ways the problem of much of life. I think it's the problem of morality in general. Like morality in general is if I borrow money from you, Peter, and I don't pay you back on the head, I feel good. But long term, you're not going to want to interact with me anymore, and we're going to lose that relationship. So a lot of morality is in terms of doing things that, that are good in the long term, but not in the short. And so I think, you know, cultivating these emotions are a way to get there. But so is willpower. I think the problem right now is we're fighting the battle with one hand tied behind our back, the moral emotions, and that's the stronger hand. And we need every weapon we have to try and, and fight this battle. You know, it, one last question I want to ask you, which is that you, you have this you, you have great research. I love it's new. And a lot of it is a new take on on some older research, too. You talk about these this the study that you did with um, I don't know if it was you that did it or others, but uh, with students at Berkeley and that there were um, they they performed poorly on an exam, if I'm remembering this correctly. And you prime them with self-compassion. So the students who were encouraged to treat their initial subpar performance with understanding and forgiveness subsequently uh, increased the time they spent studying by 30% compared to the other students. I it was it was it's counterintuitive to me because I would imagine and I can see my own self-talk, which is when I do poorly on something, rather than respond with you know, forgiveness and understanding, I'll say like, wow, you know, you didn't study hard enough. You didn't work hard enough. You got, and, and that the motivation comes from the disappointment rather than the understanding and forgiveness and the fear that understanding and forgiveness, which I think a lot of managers have, if I understand and forgiveness, forgive someone's failures, it will only encourage them to fail more. And you're saying the opposite is true. Can you explain that? And so that work was actually not mine. That was work done by Serena Chen, who's a professor in the psych department at Berkeley. Um, but it's, it's actually true. Now, the trick here is that self-compassion has to be extended only when true efforts are made. If you don't succeed, Peter, because you actually didn't try and study and you actually goofed off, that's not something you should extend self-compassion for. But when best efforts are made for those failures, yes, self-compassion is important. And it's not that kind of shame for not doing it and, you know, and, and, and self-criticism won't help. It certainly will. But the problem is as a long-term strategy, that is poor because what you're always doing is putting yourself under stress. What that does is normally impairs your ability, at least long-term, to be successful, to work harder. It's also harmful to your health. Whereas self-compassion increases your patience and your value of the future. When you next approach the task, you're not approaching it with this anxiety and feeling guilty. And so therefore, it's a, I think it's a better outcome. Also, you know, our work on pride shows the same thing. When we make, make people feel proud about their abilities, they'll persevere longer at tasks. And so I think for managers and for individuals themselves, compassion is important, but it's not what I would call kind of, you know, free-flowing compassion in the sense that it's okay you didn't try. It's compassion for a well-intentioned effort that failed to get them to try and do it again.
David, thank you. You've added a really important voice in this conversation. I feel like you're speaking to a lot of us who might be a little hard on ourselves and might push ourselves really hard and recognizing that there might be healthier, more productive ways of achieving the objectives we want to achieve that connect us with others uh, more profoundly than than some of the self-talk that might actually be counterproductive. So really, really appreciated the book. I thought it was fantastic. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Sure. Take care. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.